For those of you perhaps visiting or who are more sporadic in your attendance, for about eight or ten weeks, we have been in this section of Mark in which we have been looking particularly at the suffering of Jesus. From the Garden of Gethsemane all the way through to Mark 15, 37, which is where we hit a hard pause when Jesus breathed his last and died. For that is a moment in history that unleashed an incredible amount, number, quality, type of gifts that Christ purchased through that death that he now gives to us. So last week, and your bulletin is a short chart encapsulating some of the thoughts of those gifts that might help you a little bit to follow along because we're touching on so many of them. But last Sunday, we noted these huge gifts of being brought to God himself, getting to commune and relate with God. Just a reminder in Sunday school this morning in Leviticus, as we looked at that, how incredibly holy that whole thing is. And then more specifically, all the blessings that come relationally from the Father and relating with him, through the Son and relating with him, through the Spirit and communing and relating with him. All soaked in love and grace as Jesus indwells us through the Spirit and at the same time is at the right hand of the Father, mediating, interceding on our behalf. Incredible gifts that allow us to commune with, to know, and to fellowship with God in incredibly sweet ways. Today, we have a couple more, a couple dozen gifts to try to look at that I'm going to group into three themes. Again, if visually the back of the bulletin helps you a little bit with this. Gifts of uh, what God does in dealing with our sin. Gifts of our standing, our position, our identity before him. And gifts of transformation of our beings and our nature. Again, the main goal in this is not depth as we often are seeking, but more expansiveness and accumulative effect of the gifts that Christ purchased and certainly this is not an exhaustive list, but some big ideas that the scriptures tell us. Remind you again, our goals are knowing the gospel and knowing these truths better. Worshiping more fervently out of that, more fully, more richly, more deeply. Evangelizing and sharing and perhaps having some new ways of thinking about how we might come to somebody with the gospel through any of these gifts and then living out these truths and allowing them to be motivating and driving. Now, if I'm sitting where you're at, I'm looking and going, oh, he's going to go through 25 or so things. All right? Uh, so I just want to remind you, don't be like the students in high school and junior high I used to teach when every year we would go through our basic grammar rules, and they would say, why? In the whiniest voice, whinier than that, uh, why do we have to study this? We know it. And then I would see their writing and know they didn't know it. So don't throw up your hands in exasperation, but roll up your sleeves and let's search even more for precious jewels that you have either forgotten, overlooked, misunderstood, or missed completely. So our first grouping is... Gifts of what God does with a sinner's sin 
when he or she believes in Jesus Christ and repents of their sin and turns to follow after him in faith. Incredible value in these half a dozen or so gifts that we're going to highlight. Thinking for ourselves and being reminded, even as Robbie prayed just a few minutes ago, how evil sin still resides in us. And in our sharing of the gospel with others, that we would not skim or skimp on emphasizing the obstacle of sin in our ability to know God and enjoy God. So, number one, and this was, is mercy, that Christ died in order to give us or show us the gift of mercy. We talked last week that often this is in with grace and mercy as three biggies. I chose to separate it out to particularly emphasize what God is doing toward our sin and the consequences of our sin. So, in Titus 3, where goodness, loving kindness, so there's grace and, and love are being poured out. There's also the emphasis of the mercy of God that's instrumental in our regeneration and our change. What we're given in salvation is phenomenal, but what we no longer get or have to have or deal with is incredible in its own way. Mercy dams up God's judgment, his wrath that is coming. It removes from us our guilt, our shame, our judgment, our condemnation, our suffering of eternal hell. Perhaps nowhere is it summarized any more succinctly than in Psalm 103.10, where David writes, he does not deal with us according to our sins. 200 plus references of this gift in the scriptures, many of them centered at the beginning around the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat that was absolutely critical for the worship of God. Psalms are filled with pleading for God's mercy. We see that some in the New Testament as well, but so evident in Psalms. In fact, Psalm 51, David's confession of his adultery begins with the words, have mercy on me, O God. He doesn't ask for grace. He asks for mercy because his sin is so evil. Peter talks about a great mercy, and Paul in Ephesians talks about God being rich in mercy, both implying to us or helping us realize that this is something God is particularly rich or great in, in abundance and in value. So Dane Ortland puts it this way. The Bible says that God is not tight-fisted with mercy, but open-handed. Not frugal, but lavish. Not poor, but rich. That God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained, and I love this one, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. Two passages that just remind us of how critical mercy is every day of our lives, even as saved individuals. Lamentations, 
that the steadfast, steady, unending, never-failing love of the Lord never ceases and his mercies never come to an end. We have to have them new every morning. And God is so faithful to show us mercy. And then the ending of Psalm 23, the last thought is goodness and mercy or grace and mercy follow, chase after me, are always my shadow all the days of my life because we can't live one without it. May your heart overflow with thanksgiving that produces praise for the riches of this immeasurable gift. We won't spend that long on any of the other ones, but such a rich one. Secondly, under this category, Christ died to give us the gift of forgiveness of all of our sin. Psalm 103 that we often note, and we will note again at the close of the service or at the close of the message, bless the Lord, all that is within me, bless him, bless him, don't forget his benefits. And then the psalm is going to list a whole bunch of benefits, but number one, top of the list, right away, first place, the psalmist goes is the forgiveness of all our iniquities, all those Old Testament sacrifices given millions of them, perhaps billions, for one thing, primarily, the forgiveness of sin, so there could be communion with God. Peter, when he is preaching in Acts chapter 10 to the Gentiles, to Cornelius' household, his climactic statement, the way he summarizes what everyone who believes in him receives is the forgiveness of sin. That's the single feature that he emphasizes or points out the most and is a great reminder for us in our own proclaiming of the gospel that one of the sweet, sweet, sweet blessings of coming to trust in Christ is the forgiveness of our sin. More in Ephesians 1, Colossians 2, many, many passages. We could spend a lot of time here as well. We just sang last week, my sin not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross. Same imagery that uh, Paul gives us in Colossians 2. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And that makes it well with my soul. God also describes the forgiving of our sin as the removing of it from us. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west. He is going to take that sin and not leave it in our sight, not leave it, its shadow nearby us. He is going to take it as far away from us as it possibly can. He buries them in the depths of the sea, he tells us in Micah. He blots them out in Acts 3.17. He puts them behind his back. So that one of the most blessed conditions that humans are in is blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. There isn't a happier man on the face of the earth than the ones whose sins are washed away, are wiped away by Christ's death. May your heart overflow with thanksgiving that produces praise to God for the riches of this immeasurable gift. Third, picking up pace a little bit, Christ died to give us or show us an atonement, a propitiation for our sin. Bigger words and intriguing words. Atonement is over 100 times in the Old Testament, not mentioned in the New Testament. Propitiation becomes God's word there. But it's the idea of emphasizing the necessity of a payment. A payment that pays for in full 
a wrong that has been done in such a way that it not only appeases the person who has been wronged, but it is replaced, or that person replaces it with favor. So several scriptures you can see there. Hebrews 2.17 just emphasizes that Christ was made like us, body and blood like us, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest who would make propitiation, atonement, payment for the sins of people. It's a payment we could never come close to making. Fourth of what God does in dealing with our sins through Christ's death is that Christ died to give us cleansing, washing, purifying. One of the most well-known passages that we have probably on this is 1 John 1, particularly verse 9, but even in verse 7, we're told that we, the blood of his son cleanses us, emphasizing how filthy sin makes us and how God needs to cleanse that. And the only cleansing element against sin is the blood of his son. But if we confess, he's faithful to forgive and then to add to that word picture to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Back to Psalm 51. David emphasizes over and over God, wash me, cleanse me, purge me, wash me, create in me a clean heart. Over and over and over, he's recognizing the need for that in light of the utter filth of the sin that he has committed against God. Jesus shows us also in the washing of the disciples' feet in the upper room that that is an ongoing washing of our feet every single day as we continue to sin and he continues to forgive. Fifth in this list of things done with our sin is that Christ's death gifts us with freedom. And I'll put together with that redemption, slight differences, but pretty interchangeable. The idea of buying back out of bondage something that once belonged to you. The payment of a ransom. And these words are often used as verbs as well. Free us and redeem us or ransom us. If you remember Mark 10, 45, it's the verse that always shows up every Sunday as we begin to think about Mark. We are prisoners, humans are prisoners because of their condition in three ways. Sin has taken us captive to do its will. Satan takes us captive in his evil clutches to do his will. And the world holds us in captivity. We're hopelessly trapped within this, these three prisons, unable to ever break out. And then we have these beautiful descriptions of Christ coming, dying at the right time in order to redeem us out from under the curse. Paul goes on in Romans 6 to speak of it as once being slaves and having been set free. We get this picture in the Bible of the warrior Jesus charging into the enemy's camp on this earth, on this planet, and freeing all of the POWs in order to free us forever from all of that. All the way to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1 emphasizes that he loves us, Christ does, and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And then the familiar line in Galatians 5, this is why Christ has set us free, so that we will live lives free to run after God and to serve God and to run with God. May our hearts overflow with thanksgiving that produces praise to God for the riches of these immeasurable gifts. Sixth on the list, 
going a little bit faster. Christ died in order to give us the gift of pardon. It's actually not a term that's used in the New Testament, but the Old Testament highlights it often and I think is worth noting. It's the idea of somebody being guilty and deserving a long sentence and being pardoned from it. And particularly we know that that is because we ask for that pardon through Christ's death in our place as our substitute. It is scandalous how scot-free sinners go when they receive pardon from God through his son. We go from facing a billion life sentences in hell to eternity in heaven. What a pardon. And then finally in this area, God even through his son's death, gives us the gift of repentance. While scripture commands us to repent, the reality is we cannot fully without God's help and empowering. So in Acts 5, while they're preaching the apostles, they emphasize that God exalted Christ in order to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. It's repeated again in Acts eleven eighteen. That God not only wants our slate wiped clean, but he wants our lives cleaned of sinning as well. For that to stop, for us to renounce it, be repulsed by it, hate it, want to be rid of it, to turn from it. And so Peter encapsulates, so you don't see the word repent there, the idea of dying to sin. That it no longer has any draw that the believer is in essence saying to it, I am dead to you or you are dead to me. May our hearts overflow with thanksgiving that produces praise for all of these immeasurable gifts of what God does with our sin. Next category or area that I broke some of these into is the gifts of our standing before God, our position, beginning first of all with justification. This is that big term. Paul was huge on it. It meant so much to him coming out of the legalistic religion that he did that measured righteousness or supposed human righteousness by deeds that humans did. This is a legal act or declaration that instantly declares someone to be right or righteous rather than guilty and treats them accordingly. This was exhilarating to Paul. So you can see over and over, particularly in Romans 3 and 4 and 5, justification is all over. Just over and over, Paul just keeps saying, hey, it's not by works, it's all grace, it's all faith. It just comes apart from all of that. We're justified completely by what Christ has done. He just can't stop talking about it and pointing us to it because it is such a difficult thing for us to fully believe and accept. We constantly want to keep putting our own righteousness into our salvation in some way. Secondly, under this category, very similar in many ways, is Christ died to give us the gift of his holiness, God's holiness and righteousness. To be in our standing before God, in our view, in God's view of us, sinless before him because of his son and his righteousness. Nothing can be in the presence of God that is sinful. Everything must be absolutely holy. And so this is God's goal in saving us. 
is that we would be holy. Ephesians 1.4, the opening of the letter. Here's why God chose us. Here's his end game, what he's really pushing toward for us to be holy and blameless before him. Later in the letter, about halfway through, he reminds us we're going to get a new self. We'll talk about that in a little while. And that new self will have a likeness, a remarkable likeness about God in true righteousness and holiness. We become image bearers of him on a whole new and deeper and more beautiful level. Colossians 1.22, and then in Philippians 3, let me just highlight that one quickly as well, where Paul says, I want Christ, I'll give up everything for that, because in him, in Christ, I get a righteousness that isn't my own, that doesn't come from my keeping the law, but comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends entirely on faith. And I would remind you finally also here, That in Ephesians 6, righteousness is our breastplate. It is our guard, our protection, our main piece of armor in that way. Now, all of this holiness and righteousness comes through this big word, imputation. So I kind of have it as a subcategory, and it's not a word that the New Testament uses, uh, but we can clearly see the concepts. This is imputing or putting onto or into something, Something that is foreign otherwise. So there's a two-way imputation. Our sins are imputed unto Christ on the cross, and his righteousness then is imputed to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, astounding verse, gives us the clearest picture of this, that he who knew no sin was made to be sin, so that we might become not just better people, but the very righteousness of God. God strips us of our filth and our rags and clothes us in the finest wedding garments. And Spurgeon captures some of that. God sent us not, God sees us not marred in the likeness of the first Adam who sinned, but he sees us in Christ, the second Adam, remade, redeemed, restored, arrayed in garments of glory and beauty with the Savior's vesture on, as holy as the Holy One. May your heart overflow with thanksgiving that produces praise because of the riches of this immeasurable gift. Third in this category is that Christ died to give us the gift of identity, purpose. He helps us understand for the very first time what we were created for, the meaning of our existence and of our lives. This is just barely touching the tip of the iceberg of identities that he gives us that scripture speaks of. Um, But over and over and over, he speaks of us being new beings and having all sorts of new roles and purposes. And part of that point is, we're not just lumped into, everybody is just a generic follower of this God. But each one is given incredible value and worth and meaning and purpose that God has created them to fulfill. Fourth in this area just briefly, is that Christ died to give us the gift of deliverance. Now, that's very similar to redemption that we talked about earlier, but sometimes Scripture specifically chooses this word. And there's a pretty powerful description in uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, where we're told that he delivers us from or out of this domain of darkness that we had no way of escaping otherwise. And he transfers us in that deliverance over into the kingdom of the Son. 
And then 1 Thessalonians promises us that we will also be, through Christ, delivered from the wrath to come. Fifth in, I, in this purpose and identity is that we are given the gift of the very kingdom of God. This could easily have gone in the previous section of what God does with our sin because he moves us into this kingdom where sin uh, is absent and gone. But I put it here because Jesus emphasized it as a new citizenship, a new identity, a new way of living right now that is spiritual, not physical. But when Christ returns and sets it up in full, he serves as our Lord and King within that kingdom. And then sixth, and finally in this category, that Christ died to give us the gift of sealing or securing or guaranteeing us. And that comes through the Spirit that we talked about last Sunday. In Ephesians 1, Paul spells it out most specifically, that those of us who have believed in him and in the gospel of salvation are sealed with the Spirit, who is a guarantee absolute guarantee. God will never back down from that. So in Philippians 1, Paul talks about the fact that God begins a good work in us, and he is the one who will see to its completion on that final day. But maybe where it's most vividly captured is in Romans 8 at the very end. For many of you, I think one of your favorite passages, so rich, so good. There's three questions that are asked in there. Who's going to bring a charge against you now? And the basic answer is no one, because nobody's able to overturn God's judgment. The answer Paul gives is, it is Christ, it is God who justifies you. Second question is, who's going to condemn you? And again, because Christ is interceding for you, Paul's implied answer is, nobody can. And then third, who's going to separate you? What can separate you? How are you going to make sure that you're always connected to the love of God? And this is where we have no tribulation, no distress, no persecution, no famine, no nakedness, no danger, no sword, no death, no life, no angels, no rulers, no things present, no things to come, no powers, no heights, no depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Praise be to God for this immeasurable gift. Final category, trying to keep pedaling along here, are gifts that reveal what God does internally the, the massive changes that happen that are unseen to the, the human naked eye but phenomenal transformations and intriguingly it actually starts with deaths Christ died to give us gifts of death let me spell that out a little bit certain things that we must have removed that must be killed that must be changed First of all, we experience a spiritual death, ultimately of our self, our inner self, that parallels and bears resemblance to Christ's death. So Romans 6, 5, we have been united with him. There's that union of Christ we talked about last Sunday. In a death like his. Colossians 3, Paul's just blunt. You have died. Your old self was crucified with him, he says in Romans 6. Galatians 2, 20. I've been crucified with Christ. Secondly, we see a death of our flesh. And it's a process. Galatians 5.24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. Meaning, they have 
put their flesh on the cross with its passions and desires, and it is dying, dying, dying a long, slow death. And then third here under the death, we are dead to the world. The way Paul puts it at the end of his letter in Gal to Galatians is, the world has been crucified to me, and I have been crucified to the world. Meaning, those things that used to fuel and drive and thrill a sinner's life, now a saved individual again says, you are dead to me. John Piper, becoming a Christian does not remove all our evil desires, but it does change our fundamental posture toward evil desires. Instead of loving and indulging in them, we make war on them. But all the death language is setting us up for all kinds of life language. So Christ died in order to give us the gift of, very broadly, life. But we're going to look at about half a dozen specific subcategories of this life. One is regeneration. We already saw it in Titus 3, 4 to 7. That's where it's most specifically highlighted and pointed out and used. That there is a washing of regeneration. In other words, it's taking something that's been dead, that's been moldy, that's been rotten, and regenerating it to be more alive than ever. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about the passing of the old and the bringing in of the new, the regenerating or the exchanging. Secondly, we're a life that's born. We're born a second time. John opens in John 1 saying that all who receive Christ, who believe in his name, receive the right to become children of God. And then he explains who are born, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, none of those three things, were born of God. Jesus really parlayed this out in John 3 in his conversation with Nicodemus, where he just said bluntly right up front, uh, shaking Nicodemus up, unless one is born again a second time in a spiritual way, he cannot see, cannot enter, cannot be a part of the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is confounded by this, and Jesus says again, unless you're born of both water and the Spirit, two different birds, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And a third time he emphasizes you must be born again. And then Peter opens his letter Speaking of the great mercy and the fact that God is the one who has caused us to be birthed, to be born again to a living hope. A third way that Christ's death gives us life is that he raises us up from death. So Ephesians 2 describes us as being dead in our sin and trespasses. And then the response to that, the word picture that comes out of that is Colossians 2.12. You were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Romans 6, 8. If we've died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. And then maybe most graphically, Romans 6, 11, Consider yourselves dead to sin and utterly alive to God in Christ Jesus. Fourth under this, we get a new self. Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 both describe this self as being very much like God and from God and transforming and renewing us to be like that. We are made a new creation is a fifth way that life comes to us. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We're, we're created in a whole new way for a whole new kind of life. 
And then finally, an obvious one, it's a life that is eternal. It's a life in which we will never die. Eternal life is all over the pages of the New Testament as the distinctive mark of a life that Christ gives to someone. And if you remember at uh, Lazarus' funeral, Jesus made that confusing statement, if you believe in me, though you die, you will live. And he who dies lives. May our hearts overflow with thanksgiving that produces praise for these immeasurable gifts of life. Three final ones. And then there's more. Christ died to give us the gift of a better covenant, a new and greater covenant. Hebrews is the book that really unpacks this over and over. Here's just two highlights from it. Christ is the mediator, so we saw that before. He's the only one who can be a mediator between God and man. But in that, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them, that's Christ's death, from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, which we're studying in Leviticus in adult Sunday school, and you should come too. The other place in Hebrews where it's really highlighted, and I only put one verse, but there's really a paragraph there of about five or six verses that are powerful. And it's talking about you haven't come to Mount Zion and smoke and fire and terrifying things. You've come, I'm sorry, to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion. And it goes through phenomenal, amazing angels in procession and the saints and all this stuff. And it culminates with just summarizing it as, and you come to Jesus. And here, the description of him is the mediator of a new covenant. What he spoke of is we drink that cup each time that we take the Lord's Supper. This whole new way. And a blood that is purchased way more than Abel's blood, that first bloodshed ever could. Fourth in this category, fourth big one in this category, Christ died in order to heal us. And this is one I've noted before for you. I think it is profoundly significant for our pains. Sin causes so much hurt, so much groaning, so much pain, so much heartache. And where we find the healing for that, it is in our Savior on the cross. Fifth, Christ died in order to give us the gift of strength or power, or we could say victory in here as well, uh, the ability to not be taken or swallowed up or defeated by anything. This means both the power to not disobey, but also the strength to carry out his commands and to do his will. So Peter talks about it right up front. God's power is guarding us. It's guarding every single one of our souls. Ephesians 1, Paul's prayer, is that we would realize and live in the immeasurable greatness of the power of God. More verses. 2 Timothy 1.7, a familiar one. God doesn't want us living in fear. He wants us living in power and love and self-control. 2 Corinthians 12.9, where Paul's struggling with his weakness. And God says to him, my grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect in weakness. That all of us are. Philippians 4.13, I'm able to do everything that God calls me to do through him who strengthens me. And then, trying to draw all of these together, I thought about just listing them within the gifts as well, but they really are effects of the gifts, all that happen internally within us. Often evidenced externally as well, but 
all of these produce this deep inner state of joy. One verse that captures that again from Peter, that we always, even in trials, are rejoicing with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory because we are getting the outcome, the result of our faith that we're hoping for, the very salvation of our souls. God gets great joy in giving us gifts that give us great joy. Secondly, we're filled with a deep inner peace that surpasses human understanding as Paul describes it in Philippians 4, 7. Beyond anything humans who don't know God can imagine, seems ridiculous, seems made up, seems imagined to them, but is absolutely real for those who are experiencing the peace that God gives, the Lord of peace. And then third, we're filled deep inside with a hope, a sound, sure, steady, steadfast anchor for our lives as we look forward. Uh, Hebrews 6, 19. It's a sure and steadfast, the word picture is an anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner. Phenomenal goodness of God. As we noted before, oops, I got to find that. Nope, I forgot to do it at the beginning. I thought I had it in my notes at the end. Spurgeon had this line, the greatest gem in the crown of God's glory is his goodness. I think that's debatable, but where he drew that line from was when Moses wanted to meet with God and have him show his glory, and God said, I'm going to put you in the cleft and I'm going to pass by and I'm going to let my goodness pass before you. The goodness of God is an incredible, incredible thing. All because Christ died, all because of the cross, all because of his body and blood, all because he paid it all and it is finished. Hebrews 2 calls it such a great, a phenomenal salvation and it's a section that warns us not to take that lightly and not to minimize what phenomenal salvation it is. If we could picture it, and we can't fully, but if we could picture this, these gifts we have been describing are a massive mountain range. And here we are, a little ant, coming with our little crumbs, our filthy rags that we think are righteous deeds to God. And he's like, let me take care of that for you. Boom! Massive gifts heaped and poured on us far greater than any of us can ever imagine or picture or realize. Let's not think of salvation lowly, lightly, but see it as spectacular, phenomenal, amazing. And I want to just remind you, this is just gifts of salvation. We haven't talked about the gifts of relationships that we get through Christ. We haven't talked about the gifts of the church that we're given. We haven't talked about the gifts of heaven eternal things that we haven't even begun to experience yet. There's all kinds of other gifts. We're not covering them all. These are just the gospel ones that come in at salvation when we trust in Christ. We are, those of us in Christ Jesus, because of faith and repentance in him, the richest people in the entire universe. Nobody comes close. Nobody. Phenomenal gifts and goodness that God gives us. 
And I just want to say to anyone here who sits here and either finds this boring or doesn't relate to it. It just seems mechanical. It seems distant. It's just a bunch of wah, 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 wah talking. These are all offered to you. When you believe in Jesus Christ and what he has done, his person, his work for you, the necessity of it, and you cry out in repentance for his mercy and grace and love upon you. Just a reminder again, may all of these gifts enhance your knowledge, your knowing God, and the result of that, your worshiping of God. I want to bring you back to, I think we got to go back one slide. I want to bring you back to Psalm 103. That line in there, forget not all his benefits. Do not let these things slip away from your mind. Do not let this world fill you with lesser things that you're awed by. Do not let Satan steal these things from your memory and your thinking. Meditate on these. Be awed by these. For the next month, take each of these and come back and just worship God in awe over it. May it enhance that so that you are blessing the Lord evermore. And the result of that then is you're sharing that evangelistically with others and you're living it out. Paul has an interesting line. I don't have it on the slide, but he has an interesting line in 2 Corinthians 6.1. We appeal to you not to receive the grace or the gifts of God in vain. That you allow them to just not have very much effect on you. Oh, that's nice. I'm just glad I'm not going to hell. Rather than to be stunned and awed and transformed by what they have done. So now, next slide, we're going to finish with just this stunning declaration. Paul says toward the end of Romans 11, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. There isn't any point where he pulls it back from us. They are there. They are there for good. They are all for us. And then a few verses later is where he breaks into this beautiful benediction. Oh, the depth of the riches of God and his wisdom and the knowledge how unsearchable all of it is. And then he asks two questions. And the second question is, who has ever given a gift to God that he would have to repay us? There's the other side of this whole thing. We've given him nothing that he needs. And he has given us everything in his son, Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul then says, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen.